Good morning. It is truly good to see you all here this morning. Let me add my thanks to Doug's. Our visitors, you are welcome guests. We are honored to have you with us. Members, you are welcome as well, because when we are together, we are stronger, and we support each other in a way that we cannot do apart. This morning, I'm going to be talking about living quiet lives of faith. Now, a few weeks ago, members were asked to put forward topics for sermons that they might be hearing from the pulpit from people like me. Several of the responses were calls for a deeper study of especially complex scriptures or subjects. Most, however, were focused on what we might call practical Christianity. Questions that begin with the word, how? Brothers and sisters were seeking answers to the enduring question of Christianity, which was, what sort of people ought we to be as Christians in the midst of a lost and dying world? Now, the Bible gives us two types of answers to this question, an authoritative direction and living example. The first might be Peter's instructions to the first century Christians in 2 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Excuse me, 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 5. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Now that's a long list. And it's not just individual things, but it is compounding things. To each thing, you add something new until you have something complete. I'm glad that God, in his wisdom, gave us examples through scripture because in some ways we can see through the experiences of the lives of others, the power of God in others, how God wants us to live. And answer the question, how then ought we to live? Hebrews chapter 11 provides an excellent summary, a review of God's awesome power demonstrated through the lives of faithful men and women. And if you have an opportunity at some point, I invite you to go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and review the types of people that were that are mentioned and the types of events that they experienced, the power that they experienced and demonstrated with God at their side. Now, while I think that those are important, uh, important life examples, I want to suggest to you that there are other people in the Bible that didn't make that master list of heroes of the Bible. They are people that we read about in the Bible who show us examples of, of faith lived quietly on a daily basis. I want to talk to you about one of those individuals today. His name was Joseph, and he was the man who raised Jesus. Now, if the story of Jesus were a, mu a movie, then Joseph's name would probably appear somewhere down in the credits about near shepherd number three. If the scripture... If the script followed the scripture, he wouldn't even have a speaking part. You see, not once in the Bible do we have the words of Joseph. He would disappear in the story probably at the end of Act 1 with no foreshadowing and no explanation as to his fate. Nevertheless, Joseph was an essential part of Christ's early years. And the acts and effects of that life reflect a consistent faith and deserve our consideration this morning. Now, the Bible describes Joseph as a man faithful to the law, and you could see it in his life. By faith, Joseph took Mary as his wife, 
accepting the angel's testimony that the child she carried was from the Holy Spirit. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to be reading Matthew 1, 18 through 21 and 24. Matthew 1, 18 through 21 and 24. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And in verse 24, we find, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Now, some translations of the Bible use the words betrothed or espoused when they're describing the relationship that existed between Mary and Joseph. It was a relationship that was almost synonymous with being married itself, and it was considered just as binding. The law of Moses said that the penalty for unfaithfulness, for adultery in this state, was stoning. Now, by the time that Joseph and Mary came along, the Jewish law had softened somewhat to allow divorce in certain circumstances. And Joseph, as he was considering his options in this occasion, had four different, different options to choose from. He could abandon Mary and bring shame on himself. He could expose her unfaithfulness and bring shame on her. He could quietly divorce her, limiting the public exposure and reducing the shame. Or he could complete the marriage, eliminating public exposure and avoid shame entirely. The scripture makes clear that Joseph did not hesitate when he received the word of the Lord. And he followed the guidance provided by the angel, taking her to be his wife. And it doesn't say he waited. It says when he woke up, he did it. When next we read of the couple, they're headed together to Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place during Quirinius, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be his married, to whom he was pledged to be married, and was expecting a child. Now there's nothing in either Roman or Jewish law that would have required Mary to accompany him. It was enough for him to go alone, but he kept her with him. That's just one example of how, by faith, Joseph took responsibility for Mary's child from the very beginning, doing what he could to nurture and protect it. And that story continues. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for, pur for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now Joseph ensured that he and his family honored the law. 
He was following the law and doing all of those things. In doing so, he gave Jesus a place within the Jewish community and legitimacy under that law. In naming Jesus, he was formally declaring the child to be a member of his family and by extension, a member of the tribe of Judah and of the line of David. In having Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, Joseph was proclaiming him to be an inheritor of the covenant between God and Abraham, found in Genesis. In taking him to Jerusalem for the purification rites associated with the firstborn son, Joseph was honoring the covenant between God and Moses established as the children of Israel left Egypt in Exodus. In all of these things, he was giving Jesus standing within the community, standing through his relationship as his father. Jesus' ability to sit with scholars in the synagogue when he was 12 or to challenge them in the same place 30, when he was 30 required that he have that type of foundation, that he be established as somebody who had a right to speak and to be heard. It is Joseph's, Joseph's faithful adherence to the law that makes that possible for our Christ to stand and deliver. Joseph also acted to ensure Mary's child was safe, even when it meant dropping everything and moving to a foreign land. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be reading Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Matthew 2, 13 through 15. This is, this is initially speaking of the Magi. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Taking Matthew as being accurate, Joseph and Mary are still waiting in Bethlehem to be counted in the census. Their home is in Nazareth, about 70 miles north of Bethlehem. Okay? He gets them up in the middle of the night and heads south to Egypt. When he leaves, he is going into exile. And with no warning, he is taking his child and his mother and leaving behind the family, their friends, their home, and his business. He's not going north to collect his stuff and go away. He leaves. How long are they going to be gone? Well, he has no idea. Until I tell you is the only guidance he gives. How would you like to have that as an open-ended assignment? Hi, we want you to pick up and leave tomorrow, and oh, by the way, we'll let you know when you can come back. That takes faith. That takes dramatic faith. Now, in fairness, with all the uncertainty, Joseph would have been well-equipped to care for his family in Egypt. He, had, uh, he was a skilled craftsman and would have been in demand pretty much anywhere he went. And there was a fairly sizable community of Jews in Egypt. So there would have been a place for him to establish his family. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it was an easy thing to just pick up and go. There was a challenge there. And it appears that he was successful because he went and he stayed there for a couple of years. Or at least if, if you calculate by, by when the census takes place and the death of Herod occurs, it looks like it's a couple of years. He gets settled, he establishes a new business, Starts to, starts to build his home, and then he gets another dream. He has another message from the angel. And it says, okay, it's time to return. 
Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 23. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. I don't know about you, but as many dreams as this man have that changes his life, I'd be afraid to sleep. Historic records, as I mentioned, suggest that he had been in Egypt for a couple of years. Uh, Luke asserts that Jesus was born during the first census of Quirinius, and, and Matthew states that he came back after the death of Herod, and that's about two or three years. Even after they returned to Israel, Joseph is cautious, because Herod may be dead, but his son has stepped into his place, covering at least a portion of the lands that include where he would go. It's not just his own safety he's considering, and in point of fact, it's not his safety at all. Nobody knows who he is. It's the child that they're after. So with the child's safety and security in mind, he moves to a different place and establishes himself in another location. Now, any parent's going to tell you that protecting a baby is one thing and keeping track of a child when it gets older is something else entirely. Joseph dealt with this challenge as well. Turn to Luke 2. We're going to be reading from verses 42 through 47. Luke 2, 42 through 47. When Jesus was 12 years old, he went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, any parent is going to panic when they've lost a child. But I'd suggest to you that Joseph was under a special strain that, that three or four day period. You know, he might not have understood what God's full plan was for Jesus, but he knew that the child was something special and that God had entrusted him to his care. How could he forget? Multiple angelic messages, the visit and the gifts of the Magi, the public de declarations and prophecies of Simeon and Anna in the temple linking the child to the redemption and salvation of his people, and years spent in Egyptian exile. All would have been strong reminders that he was responsible for that special someone, and he lost him. Think of what that must feel like. You've been given something that important, and you misplaced it. Now, Imagine the equal relief that Joseph felt when they finally found him after three days of hunting. He finds them, they find him among the scholars in the temple. Now, it's interesting that the scripture says that it's Mary who runs up and starts talking. She says, you know, how could you have done this to us? Do you know how worried we were? The reason that you don't hear anything from Joseph at this point is because he's on the bottom step, sitting down, panting, hyperventilating, because he has finally found what he had lost. I, I'm convinced of this. Now, such was Joseph's faith, faithful care that God's son prospered in his house, and no man could tell that the child was not his own. It wasn't just a question of doing what God told him. He did it well. 
He did it fervently, and he did it so well that nobody else could tell the difference. How do we measure the impact of Joseph's stewardship? Perhaps the best way is to look at the product of that stewardship. Yes, Jesus was and is the Son of God, but, he was, he, but it was not the man who raised Lazarus or fed the 5,000 that greeted the Magi. It was a baby in swaddling. Like any child, it would have had to grow and learn to reach its full potential. God wanted Joseph to be a part of that process, which indicates Joseph offered something to the child and for the child that was needed, something that he could get from a man, a human man, and a father. Like the servant in the parables, he had received ten talents from his master, and Joseph took that, took that entrusted responsibility, and he invested himself in increasing the value. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the idea of increasing the value of the Son of God, but the purpose of the Son of God was to come and live among us, to experience life as we experience it, to see the world as we see it, so that he can be perfect representative on our behalf. In childhood, that means learning, and that means having somebody who can teach you and serve as a good example. This training would have involved close daily contact with Joseph sharing his knowledge and guiding the hands that would gradually mature from an apprentice craftsman to a journeyman and a master. You see, Jesus was the oldest son, and the tendency was if you were the oldest son, you were going to follow in your father's footsteps and take up his business. So they would have spent day after day together in the shop doing business. And that is one of the things that shapes a young life. The final verse of Luke chapter 2, the last scripture that talks of Jesus in his youth, tells us that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Joseph was a part of that growth process. He may not have been Jesus' father, but no one could tell it from the way he treated the boy. As Luke notes in the Gospels, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Luke was reflecting the common perspective of the time. Matthew says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named, mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? When people considered who Jesus was, their first thought was his relationship with Joseph. That's because Joseph had fulfilled his obligation to God, not just as the caretaker of the promised Messiah, but as the father of a child. Now, I believe there are valuable lessons we can draw from Joseph's life. His name doesn't appear in the Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11, Faithful Hall of Fame, but it should. He was not at the center of a great event, and he did not perform mighty miracles uh, in God's name. Instead, he contributed to a miracle through his faithful service to his God. Like his God, the one who spoke to Elijah on the mountaintop, Joseph's faith was presented as a gentle whisper rather than a tempest. It was, a it was demonstrated in a quiet and enduring obedience to God that shielded and shaped a single life. Just one life, but a life that changed the world, that changed our eternity. I appreciate the example Joseph provided because he was a normal guy like me. He was a normal person like all of us. I don't see myself moving mountains or parting seas or overthrowing great armies, but I can do what he did. Like him, I can demonstrate my faith through day-to-day -day obedience to my God. 
I can show responsible stewardship of the divine thing that God has placed in my care, accepting and nurturing and sharing the gift of salvation in a way that ultimately blesses the world around me. I can be like Joseph, and you can too. Now there's another lesson that we can draw from Joseph's life. His faithful service was to his God, but the acts that reflected his faith were centered on Jesus Christ. That is what it is to be a Christian. If you've not been baptized into Christ, then the question you should be asking yourself right now is, how ought I then to live? It has to be, what must I do? To you I say, repent, confess that Jesus is God's Son and your Savior, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Make Christ the center of your faithful service to God. If you're a Christian, know that you, like Joseph, have been entrusted by God to hold and nurture something precious in your life and to share that blessing with others through your life, through the life that you live through word and deed. If you are struggling to hold well what God has entrusted to you and to hold on to what he has given you to share, know that you are not alone. If you need encouragement or help, you have brothers and sisters who are ready and happy to offer that help. Permit us to serve you and through you to serve our God. Remember that when you ask the question, how ought I then to live, you have examples, not just in the Bible, although Joseph provides a great example, but around you. Look around you in this building. There are other people in our midst living quiet lives of faith who demonstrate on a daily basis their commitment to their God through the way they treat each other, through the way they live the message that he has delivered through his gospel, and through the way that they reach out in humility and kindness to help. Whatever your need may be, won't you come as we stand and sing?